Hospitality. What, what comes to your mind when you, when you hear that word? I get the sense that it's not a word that we, we use all the time anymore, at least maybe my generation. I googled the word hospitality this week, and I didn't see any articles about being a welcoming neighbor or a caring citizen. Everything written on the subject was about hospitality as industry, the hospitality industry. You know, people who work in hotels and restaurants and convention centers. God bless those people. They have a very hard job. You know, if you go to a conference, you might be invited into the hotel's hospitality suite. Or you can even go to university now to get a degree in hospitality management. You'll soon realize as you search magazines and the internet for information on hospitality that it's primarily used as a tool for marketing. Businesses or people offer hospitality so you or I will buy a product. That's why it's become an industry in and of itself. But that's an interesting development, isn't it? How did hospitality move from being a virtue of a citizen, you know, being the kind of person who welcomes someone into their home who's caring, to an industry and a marketing device? Perhaps the evolution of the word hospitality is one reason I think many Christians don't think very often of, of hospitality as a Christian virtue. Perhaps when you think of hospitality, you think of the person in the church who um, is really good at throwing, a, throwing a, a social party. For others, I, I grew up this way, hospitality was all about having at least one room in the, in the house tidied up just in case a visitor popped by and always having cookies and cakes, you know, uh, ready just in case someone came over. But friends, I'm, I'm afraid that Ne that neither hospitality as industry or, or hospitality as being prepared for social engagements is really anything to do with biblical hospitality. You see, in the first century, that's when the book of 3 John at the end of the first century was written, and in the Mediterranean world, that's where it was written, hospitality was primarily an act of housing. It was quite a technical thing. It was, it was housing, feeding, and protecting outsiders strangers who entered into your community. I said this last week, most villages didn't have a local hotel or an inn. And even if you were to use the local inn, it was really more of a place to store your animals than actually for a, a human to reside. But more importantly, in ancient times, you could not just enter into a community and expect people to treat you fairly and kindly. You actually needed someone in that community to vouch for you as a stranger or an outsider. And, and the person who is offering hospitality, who, who houses you and protects you, they are also the person in the public square that goes into town and says, I'm vouching for this person. You can trade with him. You can listen to him or her. So as you can see, hospitality was vital in the first century if you needed to travel and to trade commodities or to share an important message. One additional feature of ancient hospitality is that it was often reciprocated between communities. If you were accepted on your travels as a stranger from a certain community, you were expected to report back to your home community and say, hey, with a high commendation, hey, these people, this person has given me accommodation. He's, he's given me hospitality. I, I used the example this morning. I was actually preaching at another church, and I said, imagine our churches were, were very far apart, and I came, and I, I, needed, I needed somewhere to stay, and, I, and, I would, and, and they gave me hospitality, housing, food, resources. 
I would then, in the ancient times, be required to write back to Rotherham and say, hey, these, these are good people here. If they travel your way, make sure we're hospitable to them too. That's precisely what we see going on in the letter of 3 John. It's a letter of recommendation. A letter sent from one community leader, John the Apostle, to another community leader named Gaius. And he's recommending his, his friend Demetrius, who's traveling at the very end, and, and, and Demetrius is unknown to Gaius. Now, now Gaius, the recipient of this letter, is a beloved friend of John's. But there's a problem to address. You, you see, it, it appears that small missionary groups had gone out from John's church to spread the gospel in, in various towns and villages. And the only way missionaries in the first century could carry on in their gospel ministry was if Christian churches supported them along the way with food and lodging and protection. But apparently, the leader of this church, a man named Diotrephes, wouldn't provide any hospitality for these missionaries sent out from John's church. And, and by doing that, he leaves them entirely abandoned. He's actually harming the cause of Christ, right? Because they can't go on like this. So, so John is now writing to Gaius, another man in the church, his friend who has a track record of showing hospitality to Christian missionaries. And he's telling them to continue doing that. Because, he says, the gospel, the spread of the gospel is at stake. Okay, so you can tell that the context is quite different for us today. But I do think there's something for us to learn. Show hospitality is the main point. Give of your time, your resources, your home, in order to support and spread the good news of Jesus. In fact, one of the other points that's going to be kind of derivative of this is that hospitality in the church is one of the primary ways that the church grows deeper and broader. So hospitality helps us spread the gospel, but it also helps us spread the gospel within our own communities and in our own hearts. And when I say the word gospel here, I'm going to be saying that, using that term a lot, I just want to quickly define that as good news for sinners. We believe that, that obviously, that, that we're sinners, and that has created shame before God. That, that has created a, a need for punishment before God, that, that we're in debt because of our sin. And what Jesus does on the cross for us, and this is the good news of the gospel, is that he removes our shame. He cancels our debt. He takes our punishment on the cross. And that's the gospel that we're talking about today. So the, the, he's going to argue this main point, to, to show hospitality for the sake of the gospel, in three points. The first point's going to be a little longer. It's going to be this. There's a good example, there's a bad example, and I want you to follow the good example. It's pretty clear. So first, a good example. We see gospel-driven hospitality in verses 5 to 8. Let's actually start reading in verses 1 through 3. To my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, I, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. If you remember from last week, 
the primary characteristic of genuine faith is what? A faith that continues. And that's, what, that's how he commends him. Your faith is continuing, Gaius. But verse 4 really struck me. I have, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's amazing. What brings us joy? I'm often thrilled when my favorite American football team wins a, a big game or even a small game. But do we, do we get joy, even greater joy, satisfaction, energy from hearing that our brothers and sisters are growing in the Lord? That's, that's, just a, that's a very good way to, to see where is my spiritual barometer? How sensitive I am, am I to Christ? Do I get joy when people are doing well in Christ? Do, do I feel pain when people are, around me are in sin? But then John commends Gaius for his hospitality, verses 5 and 6. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters. Even though they are strangers to you, they have told the church about your love. Right, so we just mentioned John had sent out a cohort of missionaries from his, his church and Gaius had provided them with food and housing and, and perhaps even financial support. And, and in verse 5, it no, notes that Gaius did this even though they were, they were strangers to him, which is precisely what hospitality is in the first century. It's, it wasn't having all your friends over for dinner. It wasn't just having the after, after church potluck dinner or something like that. It was providing support to strangers who entered your community. Ancient hospitality is the process of, as, as Rosaria said earlier in the video, is the process of making strangers neighbors. And then Christian hospitality is making those neighbors into the family of God. So John is commending Gaius for his example of love. But John doesn't only commend him, he now commands Gaius to continue providing hospitality. Verse 6, the last part of verse 6. Please send them on their way in a manner that glorifies God. Now, to send someone on their way is to say, support them as they go on their mission. Send them off with blessings, with promises that, of continued emotional and physical and spiritual and probably even financial support. And then in verse 7, John gives three reasons why Gaius should continue providing hospitality. So he commands them and then he says, here's why. Reason one, these travelers, they went out to spread the gospel. It was, verse 7, it was for the sake of the name that they went out. In the New Testament, the phrase, for the sake of the name, is always connected to mission work, spreading the gospel. These people have left the safety of their homes, that they've left their families. They are now entirely dependent on generosity from others. Second reason, they received no help from pagans. The non-Christian communities were not going to support them. Now, non-Christian communities in the first century did practice hospitality. But often, only for those strangers who were of some kind of social means or social, means or, or social status. So, you know, if you were a commoner showing up at, 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 the, at the front door of someone in a community, if, you, if they didn't feel like, I can get something out of this guy... I'm probably not going to offer him hospitality. John's saying, listen, if the Christian community doesn't give hospitality to, to gospel workers, the world's not going to do it. 
And most importantly, offering hospitality is participating in the gospel. It's, it's participating in the advancement of the gospel. Verse 8, we ought therefore to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. The truth is the truth of the gospel. So remember last week, 2 John 11, offering hospitality, right, to someone who is a heretic, so someone who is, who is a false teacher, is, he said, is participating in their evil work. And now on the flip side, he's saying, yeah, but if you participate, if you give hospitality, if you provide support to these gospel workers, you are now participating in the gospel work, in, in, in the advancement of the gospel. Hospitality is aimed at supporting the spread of the gospel. Now let's think about application here. There will be some Christians who, John understands, will be able to leave their home. They'll be able to leave their jobs and, and in order to spread the good news of Jesus. But in reality, not everyone is going to be able to do that. But here's the point. We all have a vital role to play in missions. For John, participating in gospel expansion, to participating in missionary work is not optional. But your role might differ in it. So he's saying some may leave, some may be called to go and leave home, but all others are called to, to go and offer up their homes and resources, to offer up their em emotional and spiritual and, and even financial support so that the gospel mission can go forward. Boy, it's hot in here. Are you guys hot? I'm hot. Anyways, friends, even the poorest people in this room tonight have more physical resources and wealth than most of the people in this world. In terms of social history, people below the poverty line in places like England in, in America have more wealth than the vast majority of the world today and in every previous generation. Think about that for a second. That's an, that's an amazing line. Even the poorest among us, for the most part, still have, know where their next meal is coming, for the most part, still have, know that they're going to have a roof over their head tomorrow. So why, why am I saying this? I'm not saying it just to make, make us feel guilty. This is true of me as well. But we live in an unprecedented time in terms of wealth and resources. And I get it. We all have things going on and, and, and budgets to control, and it feels like we're always, even though that's true, we feel like we're always strapped but I'm asking, are we using our resources, not just money, our homes, our food, our time, our skills, our wealth, to promote the advancement of the gospel? John doesn't just request it. He, expect, he expects Gaius to use his resources for the advancement of the gospel. Expects it, commands it. It's not, it's not an option. Of course, this may include giving money, but it's about giving what you have. So if you have time, you give time. If you have housing, you give housing. If you, you can pray, you pray. If you, if you have money, you give money. If you, if, you, if you have skills, you use your skills. But I'm, I'm afraid that Christians are, most Christians, are happy to follow Jesus 
as long as it doesn't require them to, to change their lifestyle. I'll follow Jesus as long as he doesn't require me to you know, carve out my Sunday afternoons every week. I'll, I'll follow Jesus as long as he doesn't expect too much about how I use my money. I'll follow Jesus as long as he doesn't expect me to take my annual holiday in order to visit missionaries or do, do, do other things. What if we, Christians, citizens of, of, of God's kingdom, began to prioritize the advancement of the, the kingdom more than our, our puny 21st century desires? What if we pruned our personal budgets, you know, off of 21st century delicacies in order to support gospel ministry? What if we pruned our, our six or eight weeks of holiday in order perhaps to consider spending one or two weeks with a, a missionary who, who is in a hostile and lonely condition? What if, we, what if we gave our retirement years, not just to spend time on the beach and, and cruise around, but to serve the church? What if we gave our extra bedroom so the, the woman's worker could come and spend time doing evangelism and discipleship here in Rotherham? This is a bit theoretical, and we're all in different seasons of life, and we, we all have different resources and skills, and I get that. I mean, we're in a season of life. I, I feel it. <laughs> I feel like we've got no time or anything, even though we do. But the question I'm asking you and myself from this text is, are you letting kingdom priorities, gospel advancement, inform life decisions? Or, or do you operate as if Jesus just has no claim over the decisions you make in regular everyday life? I think we often come to Jesus almost as if he, he's coming and calling us as followers saying, you know, follow me and your life will be nice and regularly middle class and you'll have general health and wealth and happiness. We might not articulate it that way, but we kind of sometimes think that. But you got to remember, this is the, we're following the Jesus who said, follow me. By the way, son of man doesn't have a place to rest his head at night. I want to talk a bit more about the topic of hospitality because I think it's so often overlooked by Christians and, and even pastors sometimes. Hospitality is a powerful means of evangelism and discipleship. Okay, if you were, gonna, if, if you were ch tasked with starting a global religion with millions of religious communities throughout the world, and you had to create a list of qualifications for the leaders of those communities, what would you choose? Strong leader, dynamic personality, humble, knows the word, courageous, would hospitality show up? I was a bit surprised recently when someone pointed out to me that in all three texts talking about leadership in the local church, hospitality is one of the qualifications for the leaders in all three of them. That's, am that's amazing to me. I think it's safe to say that the New Testament really values hospitality in kingdom citizens. 
I think that's because being hospitable is not only good and kind and loving, which it is, but it's a tremendous avenue for evangelism and discipleship. Let me share an anecdote I recently read from, from the wife of a friend of mine. She, she wrote this week in a, in a post she put out. She wrote this, God saved me through hospitality. To be more precise, God used hospitality crucially in, my pursu- in pursuit of my soul. After years of debate between my agnosticism and my love of God, a debate that had taken place in conference halls and libraries and classrooms, in bedrooms and liquor stores and clubs, closing arguments took place in an unexpected location, a Christian family's home. A pastor and his wife, friends of my parents, invited me into their home to stay. During the mornings, I met with the pastor and aired my grievances with God and Christianity. The Bible passages and commentary he presented to me were vital to what God did in my heart in those weeks. But just as vital was the evidence his wife brought to the debate. Her evidence was often wordless. Space made in her afternoon to drink tea with me or to take a walk. Clean sheets in a bedroom I shared with one of her own daughters. A cultivated calm in a home full of children and teens. A hug freely given and a peck on the cheek. Yes, the words were necessary, but the hospitality gave the words context and weight. Friends, I've done done a fair share of evangelism training. We've done some evangelism training. I've helped lead some evangelism training in our own church. And there are always cutting-edge techniques and all that. But can I just tell you in my own experience, the most effective and fruitful evangelism is simple. Invite people into your life, invite your neighbor into your home, and slowly walk through the Bible with them, time after time. It's fairly simple, but but honestly, most Christians just don't do it. I promise you, doing that, inviting people into your life and into your home, and showing love and care, and sometimes food, and regularly sharing the gospel or walking through the Bible with them will be more valuable than inviting them to our best event we do here. Do both, please. But that's going to be effective. And you want to know why that's effective, because we largely live, and this is what the video is getting at, we largely live in a post-Christian culture. Fifty years ago, in a culture where even in England, there's still kind of a religious Christian air people are breathing all the time. You can, you can bring a guy like Billy Graham into town and he'll, he'll get 40,000 people. He'll fill up Talbot Lane and more. And, and people will be dropping like flies as he preached, coming to Christ, you know. That ain't hap- that, that's not happening anymore. You can get the best preacher in the, best preacher in the world to come to Rotherham. That's probably not happening. We live in a very different context. We live in a a culture that, quite frankly, people don't share our assumptions about who God is and that the church has anything relevant for me to say and that Christ was really a person who lived and died and rose and all this. And how do we do, how, how do we do evangelism, discipleship and Christian gospel advancement in a day like that? Do we, we could just say, oh well, we'll just, Maybe try to pray him in the kingdom. We're not going to do anything. Prayer is a great thing. You should do it. Try hospitality. 
It's what, the, it's, what, it's what the first century church did. What, they didn't live in a Christian culture. It's actually how ch- in, in, the gospel of the kingdom and churches are, are exploding in places like China and Dubai. Not through big events. You can't do big events there. Through hospitality. Flowing into gospel ministry. It's also crucial for, for discipleship. Growing into Christ. In the first century, Christianity grew like wildfire. Because as you read the book of Acts, people opened up their homes and their lives and gave up what they had. And in turn, you had organic opportunities to encourage one another in Christ. And and can can you imagine what will happen in this church and, and the watching world when they see the young single guy who invites, you know, the family of three over for dinner? cooks for them and all. That's happened to us here. Or when the 22-year-old girl picks up the elderly lady for church and then has a meal with her on the way home every week. Or when the business executive serves in the creche and watches children during the week. Hospitality within community will turn heads and Lord willing hearts. Well, we have the good example of Gaius, but we also have a bad example. Self-love trumps love for the gospel and others. When you love yourself more than God and more than others, your love for the gospel is going to evaporate. It seems in all of John's letters, have you noticed it, that there's some opponent, a villain. In 1 and 2 John, the villain, of course, are these, this group of false teachers. But in this letter, it's actually an individual, a leader named Diotrephes. Verses 9 and 10, let's read together. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Okay, so it, it appears right that an earlier group of gospel workers had gone out from John's church, And they brought with them a letter of recommendation from John. And Diotrephes won't have it. He denies them hospitality to these missionaries. And you have to remember, right, that hospitality is the only way, from Christian churches, is the only way Christian mission can continue. And now John is writing to Gaius, asking him to continue providing hospitality, and he's informing him about the bad example of Diotrephes. And there's four problems with diatrophies in verse 9 and 10. Chief among them is that he loves to be first. This is probably referring to the fact that diatrophies loves his, he loves his position of authority in the church. And he doesn't really like some apostle from another church writing into him and telling him that he should do this. He sees that as competing with his authority. And boy, is this a good reminder for us church, for for Christian churches, and, and, and for really the leadership in Christian churches. Diotrephes sees other Christians and other other churches not as co-workers, but as competition. 
I think it's very easy for church leaders to fall in love, me being one of them, right? This is, this is to us. It's, it's very easy for church leaders to fall in, in, to, in the love with the authority and the respect that often comes with being, being a pastor. We can be often more concerned with building our own kingdom than God's kingdom, can't we? Friends, James tells us that it's, it's a good desire to, to want to be in leadership in the church. But be, be so weary of the impulse in yourself to love authority more than you love the people and the gospel. And help the leaders of this church not love authority, but love the people. The second problem is there's malicious gossip, spreading malicious nonsense about us, verse 10. I don't think Diotrephes here is interested, is so much interested in ruining John as much as he is in, interested in putting John down to lift himself up. We often do that. We often become experts in the weaknesses of others, don't we? We can become experts in the weaknesses of others, not so much because we want to put, tear them down, but because by doing, knowing everybody else's weaknesses, we can feel better ourselves. Gospel under, gossip, sorry, gossip undermines the, go, the gospel. The third problem is that Diotrephes refuses to welcome Orthodox ministry, missionaries. And the last problem is that Diotrephes actually goes so far as he excommunicates people who disagree with him. Verse, the last part of verse 10, he also stops those who want to do so, and he puts them out of the church. So we don't have time to talk about church discipline at, at length. But what you must remember is that church discipline is fundamentally, at its core, about love and restoration. Church discipline from places like Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 is, is a local church collectively saying, your denial of Jesus with your lips or your denial of Jesus with your life, your lack of repentance when you're denying Jesus with your life, is evidence that you're actually not acting like a kingdom citizen. And it's the church saying, as far as we can tell, your life is not showing evidence that you're a Christian, that, you, that you're part of God's kingdom because you're not repenting of your sin. And now by us removing you from membership in our church, it's our highest plea to return to Christ and be restored. It's an act of love. But if a church removes someone for any other reason, personal disagreement, a personal vendetta, which it is here for, for diatrophies, a difference in opinion that's not related to the centrality of the gospel, that's not an act of love, but an abuse of power, isn't it? It says, when, you, when someone would do that, it's, it says we actually know better who belongs in Jesus' kingdom than Jesus himself. So let us never do that. So we have the good example, we have the bad example, and now the very simple claim at the end is, follow our example. John and Gaius, don't follow the example of me, John, and, and, and follow the example of Gaius, that's for us. Not Diotrephes. Imitate good examples and not bad ones. Read verses 11 and 12 with me. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. 
in the New Testament, we're, we're often called to follow good examples. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And now, now John is saying, don't imitate what is evil. Don't imitate diatrophies. Imitate what's good. Imitate what I'm doing. Don't be self-seeking, more concerned about consolidating power than advancing the gospel. And I think John is offering up himself. John is one who holds to truth and is exhibiting love. And although he's writing to Gaius, Gaius is the recipient of this letter, I think for us as, as secondary readers, Gaius is the example that we should follow. He stands as a person of model. He's faithful to the truth, verse 3. He demonstrates love and hospitality even in the midst of opposition. And why does he do so? Because he loves to see the gospel go forth. His heart is captured by the gospel, and that causes him to make serious decisions in, in the midst of opposition to support that gospel going forth. We want this church to be filled with men and women like Gaius. Sacrificing your, your, your resources, your time, your money, your energy, your holidays, your homes, in order to participate in the growth and advancement of the gospel. And, and friends, please, please understand this. John is not describing Superman Christianity here. He's describing ordinary Christianity. Ordinary Christianity produces radically ordinary hospitality. Friends, what, what do most people do when they find out something incredibly serious and urgent? What do most people do when, that, when they find out they have cancer? or when they have heart disease because of their diet. When you really believe something is serious and urgent, you take immediate precaution. Your diet changes, your lifestyle changes, practice or exercise regimens begin. John wants your attention. There is a world of dying people all around you. And they're infected with a disease that is destroying their soul, is what he's saying. Now, that's a serious condition. Reevaluate your priorities in light of this serious and urgent need. Give your, give your resources to advance the healing balm of the gospel. Open up, open up your homes as if they're, they're hospitals for the spiritually sick. Open up your life to those who are walking alongside of you in this Christian life, this Christian journey, so that you can help one another reach the end of this Christian journey. Love the gospel so that you can sacrifice for the gospel to go forward in our community and abroad. Let's pray.